up to Jeremiah. We're going to take a look uh, tonight at Jeremiah chapter 13. As we look at, uh, at Jeremiah chapter 13, I was reminded as I was <laughs> studying it of a, an old Latin phrase, and I probably will massacre it when I try to say it, but it's corruptio optimi uh, pessima. Corruptimo optima pessima. Basically, it means that which is best has become the worst. The idea in the Latin is that those things that we expect or we anticipate to be the, the very best things in our life, when they become corrupt, they're worse than all the corrupt things. When that which is what we believe to be best becomes corrupt, then that corruption is so deep. And Jeremiah in, in chapter 13 is going to give us five examples. Five examples of that which is best have become worse. And I reminds me as I look at this, because when you look at Jeremiah, Jeremiah, weeping prophet. Jeremiah's heart's broken his whole ministry. Jeremiah never sees a revival in his entire life. He never sees... People repent in turn. Now, further on down the line, as a result of Jeremiah's work, people do. Daniel reads Jeremiah, and it gives Daniel the understanding of, of what's happening to them and what's going on in Babylon. But at the time of his ministry, he wasn't necessarily seeing all those things. So when we go through this and we see these five examples, <laughs> I want you to hold on to the taste of that concept and that which is best has become corrupt, then it's worse than that which was corrupt in the beginning. The, the way that it kind of makes sense in my mind is with my kids. My, uh, you know, when Kathy was pregnant with Joe, we had all these dreams of what his life was going to be like. And I guess what our life was going to be like. And you have all those ideas about this. Now, I'm not necessarily saying that's bad, but you have to come to the realization, at least for Kathy and I, that's not a trial that's here today, gone tomorrow, or lasts a week, or lasts a month. Joe, be with us from now till the Lord takes us home. And there are times when you look at it and you think, oh, this was supposed to be the best it was supposed to be this incredible thing. I mean, we longed for another child. We, we were trying for quite a while to, to have another baby when Kathy got pregnant with Joe. And we had all these dreams. But when that which was anticipated to be the best is corrupted, in a lot of ways it feels worse than what we thought was bad before. And when we look at it, this is what Jeremiah's point is. As he goes through chapter 13, this is what he's saying. This is what he's crying out. The one who coined that phrase in the Latin was Aristotle. Aristotle had this idea, this concept. And we see it kind of uh, pulled out here before Aristotle was saying it. We have Jeremiah talking about it. Listen, thus the Lord said to me, Go and get yourself a linen sash and put it around your waist but do not put it in water. So the first example we're going to see, example number one, a linen sash, a linen sash. Go get this 
<clears throat> this linen belt, this linen sash, put it around your waist. So I got the sash according to the word of the Lord and put it around my waist. And the word of the Lord came to me a second time, said, take that sash that you acquired, which is around your waist, and arise and go to the Euphrates and hide it there in a hole in a rock. So for a couple days, here is Jeremiah. I got this neat new white sash. Now, the sash was not a typical garb for the prophet. It was typical garb for the priest. But nonetheless, he ties his sash around him. Everybody would notice it. It would be like you spending all your life in jeans and a t-shirt. And then now, the next thing you know, you're wearing jeans, a t-shirt, and a tie. Everybody's going to notice the tie. So here he is walking around with this sash. And then the Lord says, I want you to take that sash, that brand new white linen sash, and I want you to go to the Euphrates River, 300 miles away. The Lord ever call you to do something difficult? A lot of times when God calls us to do things, it's not just a hop, skip, and a jump. He could not get on the bus. There was not a plane. There was not hooking up with a buddy or jumping on his Harley and headed down to the Euphrates. So for him to go to the Euphrates to bury this belt was a 300-mile walk. We were talking about this morning, that concept of hunger and thirsting for righteousness, that, that the desire to do, to obey God, to follow God, to, to go after the Lord is is so much in your forefront it's your motivation for everything it, i would come up with a the concept of this is dumb why do i gotta go bury my tie at the euphrates i could bury it in a hole right here but that's not what god said was it i love jeremiah i love jeremiah because he encourages me because you know there's always that guy who's got it worse than you it's nice to look at Jeremiah and think, man, I don't know anybody had it as bad as Jeremiah. Jeremiah, he says, I want you to go to the Euphrates and hide it in a hole in the rock. So I went and I hid it in the Euphrates as the Lord commanded me. Now it came to pass after many days that the Lord said to me, so he has a, a journey down there, probably takes him a month, maybe more to get down there to bury his sash, a month, maybe more to get back. And then after many days, Scripture says, the Lord said, Arise and go to the Euphrates and take from there the sash which I commanded you to hide there. So, Jeremiah packs up. He doesn't complain. He doesn't say, This is the dumbest thing I have ever had to do. I was encouraged this morning when I come to church. You know, Dave Plue met me in the parking lot. He almost never meets me in the parking lot early in the morning on Sunday morning. So, you know, I figure one of two things, something's really bad or, or something's really bad. And uh, was nothing really bad. The Lord had just placed on his heart that God was, was calling him to, to do an altar call at the end of, of service. He didn't even know what it was going to be like. He just knows, I know that I need to be obedient to what God's calling me to be. That's what Jeremiah's doing. Well, it doesn't make any sense. What am I supposed to say? I just told David, he'll give you the words when it's time to talk. Just be faithful and come up. And God did his thing. God met him there. God didn't leave him there with, with nothing to say or, or with nothing to happen. Any more than God was telling Jeremiah to do this for nothing. 
He was saying there's a purpose, there's a plan. God has a plan. So he goes. He goes and he, and he gets that that was hid in the rock. He says, I took the sash from the place where it was hidden and there was the sash ruined. And it was profitable for nothing. You know, the point of this illustration is this. When your life is devoted to God, to the service of Jesus Christ, and that's your motivation, you are like that brand new linen belt around the waist of God. Everybody sees. Everyone is blessed. Everyone is honored. But when your life is devoted to anything else, thus the word of the Lord came to me and said, So says the Lord, in this manner I will ruin the pride of Judah, the great pride of Jerusalem. This evil people who refuse to hear my words, who follow the dictates of their own hearts, who walk after other gods to serve them and worship them, they shall be just just like this sash, which is profitable for nothing. For as that sash clings to the waist of man, so I have caused the whole house of Israel and the whole house of Judah to cling to me, says the Lord, that they may become my people for renown, for praise, and for glory. But they would not hear. When our life is devoted to God and to His service, then the chief purpose of our existence is to glorify God. It's to glorify him. But if we put our trust in anything else, what was their issue, guys? Their trust, they were putting trust in everything but God. The enemies were coming. They had seen the very same thing happen to the northern tribe of Israel when they went into captivity. They had all these packs. None of those things helped them. And here they come to Judah, which at one time, at least occasionally, had kings that followed the Lord and, and wanted to see the people of God worship They occasionally had that, but now their trust was everywhere but God. If our trust is anywhere but the Lord, if we're trusting in money, we're trusting in might, we're trusting in our power, we're trusting in a political system in the world, it doesn't make any difference. If we're putting our trust in anything that's not God, then like that buried sash in Euphrates, we are worthless. That which was best became worse when it was corrupted. And that's the example that he gives us. First, of the linen belt, that corruption. Our chief purpose and goal is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And so it's him. I love that the, the song that we just sang, I'm going to sing it till I get tired of singing. It could be a long time. But the, the phrase in that which, which says that, he is our portion and we are his prize. That he is, it's him. It's not what he can do for us. It's not the healing he can do or the, or the, or the, the work he can do in our life or, or the stuff that he gives us, that that all happens. But it's him. It's just him. Falling in love with who Jesus is. Falling in love with God. That that is that primary passion in our life. Man, I just want more of him then we are that clean linen sash around the waist of God. And we're there for His renown, His glory. He is our portion. And He, the more amazing thing to me is He says, 
That linen sash, that's my prize. I love that. That's, that's mine. That's that thing which, which God loves, which God desires. Well, next he goes on in uh, his second example. His second example is that of a bottle. A bottle. Look what he said, verse 12. Therefore you will speak to them this word, says the Lord God of Israel. Every bottle shall be filled with wine. And they will say to you, do we not certainly know that every bottle will be filled with wine? Jeremiah, he, he actually quotes from a drinking song, you know, like 99 bottles of beer on the wall. It's similar to that. He's quoting from a drinking song that was a part of, of their society in those days. Every bottle should be filled with wine. That concept is that we're living in utter and complete and total joy. That life is so good, it's like every bottle is, is filled with wine. But Calvin had this to say. I thought Calvin had a neat thing to say about it. He said, they all knew that bottles were made for wine. What they didn't realize was they were the bottles. And the wine speaks of them being filled with the joy of the Lord. But the scripture goes on to tell us, then you will say to them, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will fill all the inhabitants of this land. Even the kings who sit on David's throne, the priests, the prophets, all the inhabitants of Jerusalem with drunkenness. And I will dash them one against another, even the fathers and the sons together, says the Lord. I will not pity nor spare nor have mercy, but I will destroy them. This second example is God's judgment against sin. Their lives, like that bottle, was supposed to be filled with joy, something that was good. But they were taking that which was good and turning it into drunkenness. So God says, then I'm going to pour out upon you the wine of my wrath, his judgment, that they would be confused, drunk, wouldn't know where to go or what to do because of that life, that sin, because rather than being a people that hungered and thirst for a deeper, closer relationship with God, they were a people that hungered and thirst for a new way to sin, another God to serve, another thing to do. That was what they were chasing. That was what they were after. And that became their desire. That became their heart. The scripture lays out for us here that it's good that every bottle be filled with wine. But drunkenness is a picture of that which is best being corrupted and becoming the worst. That which was to be good and a blessing being corrupted and becoming the worst. He gives us a a third example as we look at verse 15. That third example is that of a dark mountain the dark mountain let's look hear and give ear do not be proud for the lord has spoken give glory to the lord your god because he causes darkness and before your feet stumble on the dark mountains while you are looking for the light for he will turn it into the shadow of death and make it a dense darkness The call for them here is first to walk in humility. 
If you walk in humility, you'll have light. Don't be proud. Don't be, you know, thinking more highly about yourself than you ought. Philippians tells us the same thing. God's word tells us to be other-centered, not self-centered. And I can tell you right now, the problem in marriages that are struggling or in friendships that are struggling, any kind of relationship is always selfishness, self-centeredness. I want this. This is important to me. And God doesn't call us to a life of self-centeredness. God doesn't call us to a life of selfishness. He says, be humble. Be humble, not proud. Give glory to the Lord. He is the one who will bring that darkness. We want to have eyes to see. Scripture lays out for us, and if we refuse to receive the word of God, then we have no light. Psalm 119, thy word is a light to my path. The word of God is that which guides us. But when we're not willing to hear, one of the most vital things that we can learn to do in a relationship chasing after God with a furious love, furious desire for him, is that understanding that when God speaks to us, do it for crying out loud. If God says, if God lays on your heart something and we push that down and we say, that's not God and I'm not going to listen, you become dull of hearing. If you listen, if you say, I'm going to walk in that obedience. Maybe you're not sure. Listen, if you're not sure if it's from the Lord, look at the Word of God. Does it go against the Word of God? If it doesn't go against the Word of God, you, you may be hearing, having God speak to your heart. If we know that the voice we're hearing is the Lord and we refuse it, <clears throat> then we're walking in the dark. And we're going to stay in the dark until we go back to that place where we got off track and we say, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do what God's called me to do. I got a phone call this afternoon from somebody that said they been struggled for a lot of their life over the concept of baptism. But they said, after this morning, I know that that's something God's called me to do, and I'm going to obey him. It's that idea that says, man, I want everything that God has, I want to grasp with both hands. So I want to walk in the light. I don't want to walk in the darkness. But what was their problem? Their pride. Listen, this is a prophecy that points to King Jehoiakim. Jehoiakim. Here's what happens to Jehoiakim. Ten years before the nation, the entire nation, goes into captivity of Babylon, Jehoiakim is taken away. It's like the picture to the people is, here goes Jehoiakim into captivity, and that's twilight. It's starting to get dark. It's starting to get dark. And the Lord's saying, listen, don't be filled up with pride. It's starting to get dark. But they would not hear the word of the Lord. So 10 years later, everybody else went. The light went out. God said, let's go. You're going to go into this place. You're going to find yourself into captivity. Refusing to listen to God's word, the light that they had was taken away. It was, it was taken away from them. So we have the beauty. Normally, when you think about the mountains, man, I look at the mountains, they're gorgeous. It's beautiful. 
It's beautiful to be there, to, to look at it all. We, we went uh, to Pine yesterday to do the, get the family camp situation all squared away. And it is gorgeous there. I mean, the river is beyond full. Couldn't put another drop in the river without it overflowing its banks. And the, the, the grass and the, and the bushes, the trees are just, just vibrant green. It's just incredible beauty. But the Lord uses that as an example of, of when that light is gone and all you have left is that darkness. It just fills you with dread. What's lurking around that which was best has been corrupted. And it becomes the worst. That desire that God has to reach out and speak to his people. The dark mountains becomes that picture. He says in verse 17, but if you will not hear it, my soul will weep in secret for your pride. This is Jeremiah talking. The, the incredible thing is just to see the heart of Jeremiah. The heart of Jeremiah for the people who would never listen to him. The people who hated him. The people who said bad things about him. The people that persecute him. They're going to throw him in a pit later. They do all kind of stuff to him. You, you almost go through Jeremiah's whole life and wonder if he ever had a friend. We'll, we'll meet one of them in a little while. But <clears throat> you, you wonder, what was ever good at Jeremiah's life? And yet he says here, because of your pride, I'm going to weep in secret. He wept for the people. That's how moved for the lost he was. It wasn't okay. The day wasn't okay when he started to think about the people perishing. The lives that were going to be lost. So he said, I'll weep for you. I'll weep in secret for your pride. My eyes will weep bitterly and run down with tears because the Lord's flock is taken captive. The Lord's flock is taken captive. That's why Jeremiah is called a weeping prophet everywhere he goes. He cries. He cries over their rejection. He cries over the, the dullness of hearing. Well, that's his third example. His fourth example is that of the royal family. The royal family, the, the best becoming worse. It says, say to the king and to the queen mother, humble yourselves. Sit down, for your rule shall collapse the crown of your glory. He lays out this prophecy concerning the royal family. Remember I told you the king was Jehoiakim. Jehoiakim is in this place, and, and he's ruling and reigning. The queen, the queen mother, was Nehushta. That's Jehoiakim's mother. And this prophecy speaks of the fact that the, ten years prior to the exile... They're going to take Jehoiakim and his mother. They're going to strip them off of the throne. They're going to take the crowns from their heads. They're going to take the treasures out of the treasury. They're going to take it all. That which was at one time the glory of the nation, the king and the queen mother, the king's mom, that which was so important to the nation is just like that, going to be corrupted, taken away, taken into captivity. He goes on not only to say that, but to say that the cities of the south will be shut up and no one will open them. Judah will be carried away captive, all of it. And it will be wholly carried away. So they're not going to receive any warning. It's going to go all the way to the entire... But when it says the south will be shut up, that's the Negev. 
The south is the Negev. That's desert. Nobody ever conquered the Negev. Who cared about the Negev? It's desert. If they want to run down there and live in the desert with the lizards, see ya. But King Nebuchadnezzar, he shut it all down. It's talking about that idea that not only are they going to be conquered, but they're going to be conquered completely, utter, total, total, absolute conquering will take place. Uh, Cities to the south in the Gev Desert is going to be shut down. The defeat is going to be absolute. In verse 20 he says, So lift up your eyes and see those who come from the north. When he talks about that, he's talking about the nation of Babylon, the enemies that would come from the north. And he says, Where is the flock that was given to you? Your beautiful sheep. And what will you say when he punishes you? For you have taught them to be chieftains, to be head over you. Will not pang seize you like a woman in labor? He says, listen, the, the flock, the sheep that God gave to the king, his job was to shepherd the people. And so Jeremiah says, where are your people? Well, you've, you've lost that which the Lord entrusted to you. The flock is gone. Where are the beautiful sheep? All that is going to be taken away from him. The people and those for whom he was to shepherd. And we see that which was best, when it's corrupted, becomes worse. Becomes the worst thing. That which at one time was the honor of the people, that had become terrible. What will you say when he punishes you? What are you going to do, king? What, what's happening when, when Almighty God brings his judgment against a king it's too late now. It's too late to get it right. It's too late to, to turn around. That's why today is the day of salvation. That's why now is the time that God calls us to repentance. Not tomorrow. Now. If there's something, anything in our life that is separating us from God, that God's spoken to our hearts, and we know <clears throat> this is something I need to cut out of my life, then for crying out loud, cut it out. If your right hand causes you to sin, Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, cut it off. Better that you go through life maimed than you go to hell. Deal with sin in your life. It's too late when they take you captive. It's too late when the end has come. Then he gives us his final example, the fifth example of that which is best Becoming the worst. And that example is that of a young woman in verse 22. Now if you say in your heart, why have these things come upon me? For the greatness of your iniquity, your skirts have been uncovered and your heels made bare. It's a Hebrew idiom that speaks of those secret sexual sins that have occurred in your life being made visible to everyone to see you remember when jesus was when they brought the woman caught in the act of adultery to jesus right they didn't allow her to get all fixed up or or they snatched her out of whatever bed or whatever thing she was in with whatever guy she was with and they drug her through the streets probably naked 
so that everyone knew and threw her down at the feet of Jesus and said, what are we going to do with this woman? She's an adulterer, adulteress. <laughs> and so what, what are you going to do? The law says she should be stoned. And the Bible says that Jesus stooped down and he wrote. I think the Greek word is kartageo. It means to write charges. It says he stooped down and he wrote with his finger in the dirt. Well, nobody tells us specifically what he wrote, but then they ask him again, well, what what are we supposed to do? And Jesus said, he who is without sin, cast the first stone. And from the oldest to the youngest, they all left. Until the only one who had the right to cast the stone was left. And that's him. That he was without sin, cast the first stone. He was standing there all along, riding in the dirt. So he said to her, where are your accusers? And she said, they've all left, but you. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, sin no more. Leave that life behind. Reach out to God with both hands. And don't hold nothing back. Go after him. Here the call to the people is, man, you guys have been caught in sexual immorality. Sexual sins. The, the reason why the worship of the false gods was so enticing was because it was woven around sexual immorality. You want to get people to go to church? Hey, they had a whole church full of temple prostitutes, both male and female. Whichever way your bend went, hey, they're like, we've got everything we need to, to please you. Just come. Just come and, and, and enjoy these, these, the fruits. Oh, I know that, 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 that God says that's sin, but that's old. That's archaic, man. Come on. They came like crazy. And they threw themselves before the altars of those false gods on an altar of sex. And it destroyed them. You ever seen somebody who worships at the altar of sex? They're empty. There's nothing left in them. They give themselves away till there's nothing left to give. And you look in their eyes and it's just hollow. Emptiness. That's that's what sin does. It kills you a little bit at a time. It's like taking poison. You don't even know you're dying. But little by little, it's wiping you out. He says here that their skirts will be uncovered and their heels made bare. Your sins are going to be seen. It says Israel is like that young woman flirting with false gods. <laughs> Israel in the scripture is always called the wife of God. <coughs> Excuse me. So if the wife of God is flirting with false gods, that's why God would call the sin of adultery or the sin of idolatry adultery. Sexual immorality for they were chasing these other gods. In the book of Hosea, you want a little bit of of insight into it. Well, actually, let's go. Let's take a look at the book of Hosea. Hosea chapter 2. 
in Hosea. Hosea, you may remember, is a prophet whom God calls to marry a prostitute. You think Jeremiah had it bad walking 300 miles to to the Euphrates. In chapter 2, he says, Say to your brethren, my people, and to your sisters, mercy is shown. Bring charges against your mother. Bring charges, for she is not my wife, nor am I her husband. Let her be put away, harlotries from her sight and her adulteries from between her breasts. Lest I strip her naked and expose her as in the day that she was born. And make her like a wilderness. Set her in a dry land and slay her with thirst. I will not have mercy on her children, for they are the children of harlotry. For their mother has played the harlot. She has conceived them. Uh, she who conceived them has behaved shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my linen, my oil and my drink. Therefore, behold, I will hedge up your way with thorns and wall her in so that she cannot find her path. And she will chase her lovers, but will not overtake them. Yes, she will seek them, but not find them. Then she will say, I will go and return to my first husband. For then it was better for me than now. For she did not know that it was I that gave her grain, new wine, and oil, and multiplied her silver and gold, which they prepared for Baal. God bringing the charge and, and giving a little picture of, of what that charge would be against a, a woman of, of harlotry, the, the woman in prostitute. But he says in verse 23, he says, Now can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? What's he saying? Saying you can't change yourself. You can say, okay, well, I'm going to be, I'm going to think positive. I'm going to put all around my house all these positive sayings. I'm going to do all this stuff to try to, and I'm going to set my mind to change. But he says, really? Your ability to change yourself would be just like the Ethiopian changing the color of his skin doesn't matter how much he concentrates or how much he tries when he goes to bed he wakes up in the morning and his skin is still black doesn't matter how often the leopard wishes it didn't have a spot it still has spots it can't take that it can't make that change what's his point then you also do good who are accustomed to do evil the ability to turn from our sin from that sin that so easily ensnares us and, and the weights that hold us back from what God wants to do in our life. He says it's, it's easier for an Ethiopian to change his skin or a leopard to change his spots. Once you have tasted evil, that little voice is in your ear whispering, come here, come. Come and... And I'm going to give you that which you really need. You really need this. All the while, Jesus on the other side is saying, Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. But he says the ability to change ourselves, to make ourselves good, is not found in us. It's found in him. 
So this young woman who at one time a mom and dad gave birth to and had plans for and dreams for has become a a whore, a prostitute. That which was best, when it is corrupted, becomes the worst. That which breaks the heart of those. And, And no hope is offered here. He says in verse 24, Therefore I will scatter them like stubble, that passes away by the wind of the wilderness. This is your lot, the portion of your measures from me, says the Lord, because you have forgotten me and trusted in falsehood. So now, rather than the portion being the Lord, the portion is that which they've traded him for. See, hell is just God giving people what they want. People that say, I will not have you rule over me. I will not submit my life to you. I want to exist forever away from God. That place has a name. It's called hell. The absence of anything good. The Bible describes it as a place of fire and a place of darkness. Well, of course, because that which we like about a fire is the light that it gives. But in hell, that would be a good thing. And all good things come from God. So there's no good thing there. So now you just have the burning. Where the soul will never die. The worm never dies. This existence where man finally gets what he wants. And that's what God is saying here. I'll give you the portion you want. You don't want me? I'll give you what you're asking for. Eternal existence apart from me. Therefore I will uncover the skirts over your face that your shame may appear. For I have seen your adulteries and your lustful neighings, the lewdness of your harlotry, the abominations on the hills in the field. Woe to you, O Jerusalem. Will you still be made not clean? Will you still not be made clean? Will you still reject? Will you still walk away? For though your sins were as scarlet, he can make them white as snow. That Latin phrase that we talked about in the beginning, corruptio optima posimi, the corruption of the best has become the worst. That phrase is utterly and totally changed in a relationship with Jesus Christ. That which is lost here is found in Him. That which we lose in in the fall of Adam, we gain abundantly above that in our relationship with our Redeemer, with Jesus Christ. For of Jesus, the Latin phrase would be redemptio pessimi optima. The redemption of the worst has become the best. What do I mean? Listen, don't miss this. First example was a linen sash. Revelation says that he has made us like unto fine linen, bright and clean. In our relationship with Jesus Christ, he redeems the worst. 
and makes it the best. Scripture tells that Jesus Christ drank the cup that God had full of the wine of his wrath. He took it all upon himself. He drank that completely, utterly. And now he offers to you and I to fill the bottles of our bodies with the wine of salvation. That we might experience the joy that God always intended. That which has become the worst in Jesus Christ becomes the best. In the third example, we see that dark mountain. But Jesus said, I am the light of the world. The darkness is passing away and the light will shine. We are called, as we read this morning, to be lights like a city on a hill. So let your light shine before men that they'll see your good works and glorify God. Glorify your Father in heaven. That which was worst becomes the best. Fourth example was a king and the, and the queen mother losing their crowns and losing all their treasures. But the scripture says that Jesus will come one day. We'll see in Revelation chapter 5, the gaining of crowns. Paul says, to all who love his appearing, he will give the crown of righteousness. He talks about the crown of life. He talks about all those crowns that we find that which was lost is redeemed. That which was the worst becomes the best in a relationship with Jesus Christ. He buys it all back. He buys it all back. Finally, the final example was that of a young woman who had become a harlot, a prostitute. But the scripture tells us that Jesus takes a harlot and turns her into a virgin bride, the bride of Christ. Every one of the examples that Jeremiah lays out, Jesus turns around. When I started, I told you about the dreams that Kathy and I had always had for Joe, where it would be, what it would be like. And that that which was intended or what we thought was going to be the best becomes the worst when it's been corrupted. But in Jesus Christ, it's redeemed. Oh, for sure. 70 years here on this earth, I will never have the relationship I want, I dreamed about with my son. But one day, all the scales, all the junk, all the the things within his mind that separates me from being able to enjoy him, it all goes away. Because in Christ, we see the restitution of all things. He bought it all back. And let me tell you, the 70 years, if I live that long here, is going to seem, the Bible says, like nothing, like breath, like dust, compared to eternity with Jesus Christ. When I'm with him in heaven... I'm not going to think, man, that was a long time, Lord. What's going on? No, I'm not going to. Because he redeems the worst and makes it best. Where else will you go? Where else will you turn? Who else can offer that? 
We can live a life of selfishness that says, I'm going to get what I want and I'm just going to focus on making me happy. And you can live your life for 70 years, your 70 years, in utter total selfishness. And even if you're incredibly successful and you actually live the dream and you have all those things that you think you've been ripped off for, at the end of those 70 years when you're standing before God, you will say, that is the dumbest thing I have ever done. Because that's so small compared to eternity. And I traded it all for a Harley, for something stupid, for something I didn't need. And the reality is, man, Jesus, our portion in him, is worth so much more than all that stuff. Amen? We're going to take the the rest of our time tonight, and we're just going to seek the Lord. I want to encourage you, you know, that this time on Sunday night, and um, it's, it's for you. Take those opportunities, man. If the Spirit of God is speaking and moving within you, then share that with us. If God puts on your heart a a vision or the Lord lays on your heart a tongue or God lays...